I'm Jess. And I'm George. And I'm Z. And this is Transpantastic, a podcast about gender, identity, orientation, and all the life that happens between it. So today we have with us a wonderful human being who's been a friend of ours since, George, almost since you decided to transition. Yeah, pretty much right at the beginning, because uh, I was referred to this man from a therapist in the community that said, hey, here's a guy's number. He said, people can call him. And I did. I even know where I was standing when I spoke to you on the phone. I don't. It was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> you talked to a well, lot of people. Well, you also talked to a lot of people. And that was the start of, you know, getting all the scoop on local resources. I think so. I remember. I think I remember I was at work. Yeah, I was at work. Yeah, I was at work and I, and I had stepped out. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the break room. Yeah. Yep. And See? I stepped outside. I remember now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Go memory, go. See? <laughs> <laughs> then, like now, you were already engaged in a lot of community activism and community organizing. So, you can tell us a little bit about your story and how you came into all that and all of your other wonderful avenues of making the world a better place. I don't know if I've made it a better place, but I certainly have tried to do the Smokey the Bear and leave where I am a little better than when I found it. All right. Yep. And I, um, a lot of times call myself the unlikely advocate because this was not my life plan. My life plan was to join the Marine Corps and blow shit up and retire if I lived and be on some beach with some sort of frosty beverage in my hand for the rest of my days. That is not how my life turned out to be. <laughs> no. Somebody had a bigger plan for you, a, man. There's sometimes our frosty beverages, but that's all. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah, but that is not how my life turned out. Um, it, and I think when I look back at my life and I, and I use the term unlikely advocate, especially now as I'm doing more work and traveling to more places, I realize that my life was kind of going in this direction without me knowing it because I had what I call the lifetime. My story is so much of a lifetime movie that it can't go on the actual network. It has to go on the movie channel that you have to pay extra for. <laughs> <laughs> so it's even too, it, it's not even ready for cable TV. It's, you know, the, the extra, <laughs> if you yeah. want to get this, but I started my life. My dad was in the Navy, Romeo and Juliet story. They left. both killed themselves at 13. <sighs> no, my, my mother was 15 and he was not 15. Uh, and joined the Navy to provide for his family, but never came back. Um, we realized that that was my grandmother who intercepted the letters from boot camp and from wherever he was and, and burning them and his best friend taking the money that he would send to care for me. And so I was taken to Mexico because my mother could not provide for me. And I was taken to Mexico with my abuela and my cousin for the first three years of my life. And I didn't find out about that till I was 23. Little did I know that my mother, because I didn't know who she was, because she, my dad said, hey, I want to see my kid. And the story that he told me was that she said, if you want to see your kid, come come pick him up. And the real story was he stole me. He was supposed to pick me for a summer and never brought me back. So in that. He's like, I'll teach you people to run off with my kid to Mexico. Right. Pretty much. I think, I think that, yeah, yeah, I think that was some of the, some of the animosity, mm -hmm. but they didn't know what was really happening and why I had to be taken to Mexico. And if he would have known that, it, it, it wouldn't be the situation it was. But So he took me to, to Norfolk, Virginia and California. And I was in California during um, the Rodney King riots in the early nineties, 92 to be exact. So did he stay in the Navy then? He did. All right. Um, he stayed in the Navy. He, he actually must stay to the Air Force. And he recently got out because he got 
injured in Afghanistan. Wow. So he was he was a forty year full blown colonel, wow. about to be general. Okay. So he made a career of it. But we were in California in uh, Seal Beach, Long Beach during the riots as the fires were coming down, and we lived in what's called on base, off base housing because it was all military personnel, but it wasn't attached to the officially base. on the base. Right. It was right. A, it was a, it was a subdivision that was only for military personnel. Right. Um, and as the fires came down, um, everyone got new orders because they had to. We had we to be evacuated. And so from there, um, as a kid, I got some, my dad lucked out and got orders to Kanawe Bay, Hawaii. So we got to Honolulu. We got off on the plane, and the first thing that I see is two very beautiful ladies kissing. And I had already known and kind of come out as gay because um, I knew. How old that, were you at that point? I knew that I loved women at six. Oh, okay. And so when we got to Hawaii, I was probably seven or eight, and I saw that was the first thing that I saw when I when I got off the plane, and I was like, I don't know what that is, but that's exactly what I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But it was also when Hawaii started the fight for marriage equality, and so I was I grew up watching Hawaii go through that fight and I left Hawaii in the late 90s I think 97 is when we left Hawaii and went to Jacksonville Arkansas Woo! the only part of the south I'd ever been in as a kid was Norfolk Virginia and going to Jacksonville Arkansas was a culture shock I bet I realized that the way that I had perceived the world growing up in Hawaii was not the way that this world works not the rest of the world I grew up around brown people. White people weren't weren't light. They were there were howlies and all sorts of nasty names. And then I get to Jacksonville, Arkansas, and I find that I'm the one that's disliked for the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget when my dad, who was a self hating Mexican and clicked white on all of the the papers, he he bought a house in the richest whitest neighborhood in Jacksonville, Arkansas, which was Foxwood with the country club and the golf course, and it was old money, not nouveau riche. <laughs> and this this lady across the street invites me over for sweet tea. And I go over for sweet tea. And she's like, we're so glad that, that you and your family moved in and not those other black people that were looking at the house. And I said, why? What's wrong with black people and black people in the military? And her response was, oh, the black people in the military and the brown people in the military are fine because they've been reformed. She had to ex- explain you to yourself, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> So I decided in that moment, I'd never heard that before. And for some reason, my sweet tea turned sour. And I said, I have to go home now. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. And uh, my mom had, had grew up in West Virginia. And she was my stepmother. And she was raised racist. So she couldn't explain it to me. Because it went along the thinking that she was taught. And I had experienced some of that in Hawaii with her. But I think I felt bad for her because she was the one that was being discriminated against. Right. And I think that was kind of the beginning of her realizing that this is all kind of off and wrong. And is this what these, is this what black and brown people feel? Wow, this is, this is a problem. Yep. Um, it so, seems like a good thing that she would have an ability to, and a chance to, to see that. But I don't it, know how far she takes it. So it, it took a while still. You know, I graduated high school at 15. I had a full-time job at APHIS, and I was going to college full-time. My dad got a uh, commission in the Air Force, so he went from Navy to Air Force, and got sent to Texas, San Angelo, Texas, at Goodfellow Air Force Base. 
uh, my guardians who were my youth pastors and knew that I was gay and said that leave that up to God was like, you should probably leave them here. And, you know, that was going to happen. But my mom really got scared about being left alone with my father. There was abuse that I had dealt with and it was physical and emotional um, and mental. And she didn't want to be left alone with them. And I was kind of the buffer. So she said, well, they know that, 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 that he's gay. And so my father swooped me up and took me out to, to college out there. And, and I started at, at Angelo State University. Because um, you're, you're in college, but you're still a minor. I'm still a minor. I had no yeah. choice. Yeah. So they I took you wherever they want to. Lots of college kids can get taken wherever the money's going anyway, but you're a minor. So. I was a minor. And I had scholarships all over, but I couldn't choose for myself because I was still a minor. Uh, so I get there. Really, really <laughs> figure out my sexuality. Um, I kind of made a... That happens in college. That happens in college. I had some little minor stuff in high school, but it's it's minor, right? I was 15. Especially then, you know, I mean, you. what year was that that you graduated? I graduated in 2000. Okay. So, you know, I had some... You're kissing. a baby. I was just a baby, you know, and, and I, had, I had a big faith belief and I for myself not by want of anyone else as much as they chose for that for me I myself didn't want to interact in any sort of physicality until I was 18 because things from the lens of somebody who's graduated high school into college at a younger age is like this messes people up (laughs) I was taking a stroll one day and this really cute girl said hey (laughs) and I was like how long till I turn 18 <laughs> and oh, it, that's great. And it, it was at midnight, and uh-huh. <laughs> I made it to eighteen. All right, and I made it to midnight. Oh, all right, twelve oh one, twelve oh one. So my kids can't even say you didn't make it because I did. So there you go. But I had you know a, a really interesting experience with my first girlfriend, and I think with all of us in our first loves that sticks with us for the rest of our life, and it's kind of the tone. Of, of how we feel relationships should be. My or, dad was, or what we react against. Or how we feel we should be treated. Or, right. And there was a lot of stuff going on because I'd gotten kicked out of my house. Um, I was 16-ish. Somehow, because I was an ROTC and had a full scholarship, got the apartment complex across the street to sign me a lease. So I was living on my own. I had a full-time job at a hotel. Had a scholarship. Had this girlfriend. <laughs> had this apartment. <laughs> Uh, but September 11th happened, and September 11th really ruined a lot of a lot of lives. And my dad was an officer, and it didn't matter that I was not continued with that familial relationship, and I was put under protective custody at the ROTC building um, in college, and he was held under protective custody in his office, and we were there each for three days. I go home because I want to see my mom and I couldn't call my mom. I couldn't talk to my mom. They wouldn't tell me how she was doing. And I got released and he and I got released at the same time. And we showed up at the apartment at the same time and I'm freaked out and I'm in uniform again and he's in uniform and, and I'm like, Hey, how's mom? And he's like, aren't you forgetting something? And I'm like, and what the man was waiting for to talk to me was for me to salute him. Is that right? Oh, for the fuck's sake. Would not tell me anything. And I was a because cadet. you're both in uniform. He he would talk to his freaking kid. And I was a cadet. Mm-hmm. Oh. So after that, I said fuck all of this, and I called a, I called my youth pastors in uh, Arkansas, and and they they put me on the first bus back home, and I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And so that's I think that's really you know that's that's why I find it really interesting that I have all of this back. 
of being in these different movements, seeing these different movements, not realizing how they affect me, but they do affect me. They do. They yeah. do. It yeah. all, it all rolls in. It and, all builds together. And so I was, I was in the Marine Corps and I, and I got a really, really awesome um, billet of, uh, at the time, I know that it's changed, but at the time it was 41, 42 combat videography. And well, I started off a combat correspondent. And then I realized I didn't like that as much as I wanted to. And you didn't want to be on that side of the camera. You wanted the other side. Well, combat correspondents, they, to me, they weren't Marines, the ones yeah. that I had served with, because they wanted a story and they were willing to screw each other over. Mm. And, and so my command said, you know, you probably fit better with videography. Right. And we just fucked off all day and made crazy ass video. That's great. <laughs> That's great. So, so it did kind of fit me more. Um, and, uh, so during the time of September 11th, you know, it was it was rough. And I realized that my unit was one of the highest um, for rape. There were other male Marines that were lurking while I had, because I came in in the middle of the night and they were lurking and scooping me out and making me feel really scuzzy. And, and they said, hey, you know, you should come out to the, to the E-Club on Wednesday. And I was 18. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're no. inviting an 18-year-old female who's, what, 95 pounds and five foot nothing to... To drink at the E Club, okay. And uh, I'll never forget. They put a pitcher of beer in front of me and said, "Chug." Now I had some experience in college, right? So I was better off than most. I chugged my first pitcher. They were whispering, "Like, did you, did you chug your first pitcher?" No, man. Did you? No. Well, what do we do? Just get him out of the picture. And so they put another pitcher in front of me, and I chugged that one. Like, so they're like standing at the position of attention, and I'm just like, okay, whatever, like. In the frat parties before, right? Um, and they weren't expecting that, right? And then they put six mighty racers in front of me, and then had me chug all those and stand at the position of attention. And at that point, I gained power because they had they were like, if we give them any more alcohol, it's gonna die. <laughs> and so the power shift happened, and and I was able to protect myself and some other females, not not fully because we still had problems, mm-hmm. but but then. My sexuality started to really come out, and I'd go out to the gay bars. My my first gay bar was in D.C., mm-hmm. in DuPont Circle. It was Badlands back then, and it's changed names a couple times, and now it's Apex. And I had some really good male Marines, and they would go with me, and they realized, dude, there are all these lesbians, and they got friends that are straight, but there's no straight dude. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go, because right. we have a higher chance of getting laid there than yeah. we do with all of these other straight hey, yeah, with oh, the guys. man. Right? So they protected me, and we, we would go to the, the Radisson on P Street on Connecticut Avenue, and, and it was it's now the Palomar, and they would all go to, with me to the to the gay bar, but, but things started to get really dark, and they started to investigate me for being lesbian. And um, I was protecting a partner. And so it was either she gets out for uh, mental health issues or we get out honorably under don't ask, don't tell. And I had seen a lot of loss of some buddies and some, I was tired and, and I, I just didn't, I kind of lost some of my fight. And so I just let it happen, I guess. It was time to move on and you didn't know it to happen. No. So I went and I, and I stayed in, in, in. Maryland for a little bit, and then I came up and down the coast and went. ended up in Florida for a little bit. Didn't like it. Blue hairs were scary. Yep, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Blue hairs driving are scary. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
and I uh, got a phone call from my from my youth pastor that he was going in the hospital and he needed somebody to look over the church. And so I went back to, to Jacksonville, Arkansas. I met up with Randy Romo and some folks from Song and some folks from Soul Force. And they convinced me to do a protest against the uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell for repeal and the Military Readiness Enhancement Act. And I had done a little bit of stuff when I was getting out. Like, I reached out to SLDN, and they weren't very helpful at the time. Couldn't really do work for them. But once I got to Arkansas, I started working with some some beautiful people that I still work with today. And we started that fight on repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And that's where my career happened. And I... Didn't know it. That's where your first That's where the step taste up. of advocacy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Because I was, I was, I was just supposed to go in and try and reenlist and be denied, and everyone else was going to sit in and have this press conference. And I got grabbed by the scruff of my neck, walking out of the recruiter's office, and thrown in front of the cameras. So <laughs> my my wife lovingly calls that the deer in the headlights interview. Oh. <laughs> But I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't part of my job. Right. I, I had taken a sick day off of work, and I had to. Feel, and 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 I thought, okay, this isn't going to go anywhere. This isn't. It was. And all of a sudden, you're in front of the TV camera. Right. <laughs> I'm on NPR. Oh my gosh. I'm on the five o'clock, the six o'clock, the eight o'clock, the nine o'clock, the eleven o'clock news. Arkansas is not that big. This was out of Little Rock, out of Conway, close to Little Rock. And what were you doing for employment at the time? <laughs> Funny thing. I was working at a call center. <laughs> I was I was working at this call center um, getting donations for the Special Olympics. But I had ethics problems with the cut. Right. But I'll never forget walking into work the next day thinking I called off the day before and I am everywhere on the news. And then I'm like, they don't watch the news. It's okay. <laughs> that was what I had gone with. Go ahead yeah. Help yourself deny the <laughs> No, no. It got you to work to deny it. And and so I remember that elevator ride to the fifth floor was the longest elevator ride of my life. I bet. And I get off the elevator and I start hearing clapping. Oh. And then I'm like, okay, well, this is the Southern Department. And I'm like turning the corner of my department and everybody is standing in their desks clapping. And... The only one that mattered was the manager yeah, sitting at the front. Really great, yeah. <laughs> right. And then yeah. I'm looking at him, and then, like, he's giving me, yeah. like, I'm sweating bullets. But then he stands up and, and, and does the follows in suit with the, with the standing ovation. And, That's great. And says, the next time you want to do something like that, how about you just let me know and not call in sick? <laughs> right? I, did you tell him, I didn't know I wanted to do something like that? I said I didn't know. <laughs> Actually, I didn't want to do something like that. He's like, but you knew what you were doing. <laughs> He's like, no, not really. I was just supposed to, like, I was yeah. just, yep, no. Nope. <laughs> um, I didn't that, think nothing was going to happen. It was, it was contractual. It wasn't yeah. supposed to happen. Yeah. We, had, we had talked this out, yes. but that's, that's not, you know, I guess that's where we go. That wasn't the plan for my life. So from there, I started getting into some work and... And being a, a trans man of color, like my, my trans identity was starting to come out at that time as well. And I realized very quickly that the repeal that I was fighting for didn't affect me as a trans man. 
So I knew that even after we did the repeal, none of the none of the other things that we wanted to put in place included trans bodies. So I knew that we would get the repeal, and then I would have to continue on to, to work on that. But that's really all that I started and wanted to do. And I was just trying to get back in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. But then the repeal turned into marriage equality, which turned into hate crimes, which turned into um, equal employment, which just turned into all of these other different things that were just kind of, to me, I thought fillers as I was waiting to get back in the Marine Corps. You didn't realize you were already doing your new job. <laughs> I didn't realize I was already doing my new job. That's good. No. That's totally <laughs> so I left Arkansas and I went to Houston because I wasn't going to be able to transition in Arkansas. And I, I ended up in Houston and met up with some family that I didn't know that I had, but I got the gift of, of finding out who my biological mother's side of the family was. And I get out there with my T.O. And and I was like, I remember sitting on the back porch and we were making the Mexican spare ribs. And I'm just like, you know, this guy's telling me how much he loves me, how much he was there for me when I was a kid. And I'm like, but is he going to look like they know that I'm gay, but is he going to love me if I tell him I'm trans? Mm-hmm. And I told him that I was trans and he looked at me like, what does that mean? I told him what it meant. And then he said, OK, Papa, are you hungry? Mm-hmm. And that was it. Good answer. Good nice. answer. Nice. Yeah. And so we hung out. And how long had it been since you saw your your mom's family or knew where these people were? I was gone when I was three. And I came back at 20. All those years. 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. And so we hung out because he's like, oh, there's another masculine Mexican. Yeah. And so we just stayed out back, you know, drinking beer. That's great. That's great. And then you're like, actually, about the masculine part, it really works for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's great. So, so I, Houston, I kind of took off a little bit to do my own transition. And I, and what I did was I, I figured out the direct service part of things. I had held many trans men through transition, taking them to doctor's appointments or therapy appointments. And this was still under the old standards of care where it was a whole, whole lot of red tape and hoops to jump through. Gatekeeping and. Uh, yeah. From there, went through Hurricane Ike. I uh, had a stroke at 27, 28. Whoa. I did not know that you had had a stroke. I did. It was from a Marine Corps injury. Oh. Uh. Yeah. And they told me that it would catch up to me by 30 and I was going to have a stroke by 30. And I said, yeah, whatever. Because when you're young, you don't care. I didn't figure I'd live that long. Oh, uh, there is <laughs> that. I, and if I do, then that'll just kill me. And so what? <laughs> right? But I had it at 27, 28. Um, and then the had, VA at least take care of you for it. I, I no, lost all benefits because oh, you didn't have no, those benefits. No, no, no. Oh, all right. So I recovered, and 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 my um, doctor had said, you know, a way for you to to get most of your stuff back is to actually get another job, doing something similar to what you're doing, but different enough that your brain has to rewire. And that job, um, which was just a part time job, turned into a full time job, which was then a traveling job, and brought me out here to this area. And then. My, my work took another turn in this area. <laughs> it did, because when we met you, you had been transitioned for a few years, and you were... More than a few, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More than a few. Yeah. True, but, like, you were... I mean, you were known as, like, the person that the therapist says, if you need a trans guy friend, you call this guy. You you were already, like, on people's radar. Yeah, I learned that as soon as I got here. The what I thought was insignificant work turned out to not be and Google searchable and Google I found out was not my friend anymore. Aww. <laughs> but but I started to get into different things and, and expand and grow and, and get into legislative and, and bill writing work. 
and and that was really meaningful. And I helped a little church get a, a youth, a queer youth program up. And it was because no one else wanted to do that work because they were they were afraid of faith based institutions. And they said I was basically the Mikey of the, <laughs> of the trans advocates. Give it to Mikey, Mikey will do it. So, right. Right. <laughs> That's great. So I got into a lot of projects, but but I was the Mikey of the advocacy world here. And so I would be throwing all these different projects which which would help with my skill set mm-hmm. of I wouldn't turn a community member down and I just figure it out. So that was really the turning point in my in my faith. Um, my wife wasn't here. You know, I met my wife in Houston, and when I got sent out here, I was I was away from her and my pup for eight months, and it was literally like getting sent to the desert <laughs> to figure out something. You gonna spend some time in your desert wilderness, bro? <laughs> yeah. And I lived in the desert. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting and basically a compound. And I met this really awesome Lutheran pastor who said, "You're you're exactly what 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 we need. You're exactly what the faith needs." But from here, I got moved to back to the deep deep south, and I got Aww. moved to the Carolinas. <laughs> I remember you took that hard because you were calling. You know, yeah, you did. You did not feel like being there. Nope. And once you got there, you really didn't feel like being there. It was it was some scary stuff getting down down deep into the into the south and and back at at, at a at a Marine Corps base and and being queer and it was hard and I didn't know how to deal with it and and I had a really bad bout with PTSD that I hadn't dealt with I hadn't had to deal with in a while because I hadn't been around bases I hadn't been around you know helicopters or or any sort of, of mortar sounds or, or anything like that. And, and here I am just pounded with it every day, you know, just the thump, 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 thump. Mm-hmm. And my yeah. windows rattled and, and I, and I, and I went, I, I couldn't get, I didn't, there wasn't any culture competent healthcare and I didn't have health insurance. And so I was off of my sleep meds. I didn't have any other kind of, of respite. So I, I, I self-medicated with alcohol and, yeah, you did. And that, <laughs> I got a lot of late night phone calls. I remember this. I remember this. Guy. Because I couldn't sleep. Yeah. It would, it, because it would start Tuesday night at, at one o'clock in the morning and not end until Thursday, Friday. Every, uh, you probably slept every few days. I, well, and you couldn't stay upright anymore. I mean, so it was awful. And so I finally, I finally hit a wall and I told my wife to go back to Tennessee and I was ready to to get some relief mm-hmm. and I call, I made a phone call to my best friend my from college in, in Texas and she's like no wait I know what's going on you want permission and I'm not giving you I've, I've heard you getting close but not like this before and she found a mobile crisis unit and they stayed on my ass and they got me into a year intensive outpatient PTSD program that saved my life that's great yeah so your your wife she didn't really get Get why you were sending her to Tennessee. She still wasn't under. She just thought that I was drunk. She mm-hmm. never fully understood. She understands now, but she never fully understood what was going on because I was then there before her for two, three months. So by the time that I had flipped my lid, she was just figuring it out. Right. Had she was she- always coming behind you because of work. You'd move somewhere for work and then she'd have to come get a job there. Yeah. 
Now, this wasn't the first time that this, you know, PTSD and trans status and everything else, like, got together all at once to screw you over. Because I remember you telling me that when you wanted to get your your letters of recommendation, that your therapist had wanted to dig into your PTSD before getting into your gender stuff, too. Yeah. Her, her mission was... I was her first trans patient, and her mission was to save all veterans from PTSD. Well, that's a high breach of ethics. Right. But she kept me there for three, four months trying to dig into my PTSD, and I think that that didn't help either. No, that's not the way to... You don't don't go digging. It's just not fair. Yeah. I mean, people have defenses for a reason, but that's my field, and that's why I say that. But she made me dig into some stuff that I didn't need to dig into. No, because when you need the help, you can... Get it when you need it. You don't need somebody to make you need it. Okay. <laughs> but that's what was happening. Yeah. So Some people do that. So how's this going for you so far? Amazingly, you are wonderful. Okay. You are doing exactly what you need to do. Okay. Yeah. You're perfect. Tell stories. This is what we do. We tell stories. We are storytellers. That's what I meant when I said education and advocacy through narrative. <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that, that thing. That is why I get... What are you doing, Bob? Go that's, your, that's why Andre wanted me. Is the, is the I found a new word it's called contextualizer mm-hmm. and it's putting all of these concepts in what it is in a life mm-hmm. so when you say how internalized oppression affects me we have a narrative for that and and it's, it's very much something that indigenous people and black and brown people know how to do because that's we didn't have writing well, that's part of the reason that we really wanted you to come and talk with us because, you know, we also contextualize the trans and queer experience, but we're contextualizing it as middle-class white folk. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, we, we both left home early and we didn't grow up anywhere near we didn't grow up this with life that we've made, but, yeah. but, um, but we're white people and it's so very different. So we had an easier time yeah. building and this. I know that. Yeah. Out of nothing. Yeah, so that that year intensive outpatient was really good. When I got there, the the director was a Vietnam vet, and he said he he, he sat in the chair next to me because the PA was trying to give me meds, and I'm like, I don't want meds, I don't want meds. And he sat in the chair next to me, and he looked at me in the eye, and he kind of squinted at me, and he said, this started on Tuesday, didn't it? And I was taking him back, and I'm like, yeah. He says, you're my... Okay, this freaky guy, what's he talking about, right? He's like, you're my fourth Marine. Mm-hmm. Because SOI was right there, and they were doing... And he's like, let me get... Because he knows when they... Yeah. And oh, like, he knew when what, they were what kind operations. of stuff, operations they were doing. And, and uh. he said, let me, let me guess, you haven't lived here but a couple of months. And he's like, all the new guys that, that move back and don't mm-hmm. are prepared. Right. And so, yeah. And in our in our one-on-one session. So, yeah. So, in, in our one-on-one, because there, it was, when I say intensive outpatient, it was three nights a week, four hours a night. And then a one-on-one session with him sometime, once or twice, depending on what the need was. And so, I, I had told him that I was trans. And I didn't feel comfortable and safe, and that was part of what was happening, was just feeling generally unsafe. And so he, he got it, and we code-worded it in the group sessions of certain things. That's a good idea. So I could go to group and feel understood, but also not be outed. And as, I mean, when you spend a year with people in these kinds of groups, uh, a lot of people filter in and out. But at some point in the program, there becomes the people that are actually trying to get better. And so those folks 
after I think the first eight months, it took eight months, but after that, I felt comfortable and I and I told the group that I was trans and it was like a lot of sense and moved on. Mm-hmm. And and so that was a really good experience. Um, I'm still friends with a couple of those people today. And I moved away recently. Yeah. <laughs> but that after that experience, one of the things that I first started to do was work for the trans volunteer for the trans lifeline because I didn't feel comfortable being out doing advocacy work. And so many people were pissed off at me for not doing advocacy work. Because they want they they all wanted Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and like, like, I think people put on a lot of unrealistic expectations for us Mm -hmm. and didn't realize what kind of danger I'm in, in the South, because they weren't from the South and they'd had no experience in the South. So didn't really understand what kind of danger I was in. So I just started taking calls for the Trans Lifeline. Um, it made sense. I could do it from home. I had a lot of ideation and attempts myself. I had cut my Marines down from nooses. My my mother, my stepmother had passed away from suicide. And um, it's just this common thread. And so I just said, well, maybe there's a difference I could make. I didn't realize where that was going to lead me. Right. <laughs> it's like I do these things because they feel right. And... And you I don't know, think of the consequences. I think there's a bigger plan. You know, somebody. <laughs> next thing you know, you're doing the next right thing. <laughs> yeah. That you didn't expect. That you didn't expect. Yeah. And that's where your life is supposed to be, and this is what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that had a lot to do with my spirit journey too. And and getting, you know, I've been on this journey. So what what happened is I did a lot of work in the Carolinas, and that elevated me even more. And fighting HB two and other sorts of things, a very bad political change happened. And so when that happened, <laughs> we're all just looking around the room like, yeah. <laughs> yep. And and so um, Trans Lifeline said. Dude, all we needed to hire you was the money and we got it. And so I became the hotline program director. And that was after volunteering over 300 hours of talk time, not to mention other stuff. And they were the first first organization that didn't tokenize me, abuse me, or add more to my triggers and traumas. And actually genuinely cared about me and my well-being. That's wonderful. And allowed me me to do work as I see fit. As I see what what does help for the community look like and not just say we want you to do this job, but like, Z, you know how to do this job. So what direction do we need to go? They, they respect your experience and authority on the matter. And, and Nina and Greta are amazing. And, and they're amazing at identifying people who genuinely want to do this job versus are looking for a paycheck. Right. And so <laughs> I was going on this very private journey of realizing I'm a brown man realizing I'm an indigenous brown man. And when the announcement came out, our marketing director at the time, Andre Perez, who's doing amazing work with American Transition, said, Z, now that you're going to be hired and this is going to be, you know, our first full-time hire past our directors, your full identity has to come out. And I'm like, trans man of color, what else is there? (laughs) And Andre's like, you know. (laughs) And I'm like, really? And he's like, I don't want to push you out there, bud, but we kind of got to because it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I became public that I'm an indigenous trans man of color. And I've been going on a private journey. So much for private journeys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's your first clue. I'm going to have a private journey. Wrong. <laughs> right? Exactly. There you go. Next time Let you think you want to take that. a private yeah. journey, you need to try and make it public. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably. 
so everything became public, and folks were asking me questions that I didn't, or yeah, questions that I didn't have answers to. I'm like, I'm still trying to figure this stuff out. Like, I know that I'm Mayan, but you know, my family, you know, said, "Hey, you're not just Mayan. That's your father's side." You are mine on ours, but you're also Wachuma and Apache. And I don't even know what that means to me. But I've been on this really awesome journey this year. And I'm on my, I'm on a spirit walk right now. Um, I've been on the road for a month. Hopefully I'll get to go home soon. (laughs) (laughs) Try not to go home. (laughs) That's that's the thing, you know. The universe keeps telling you, you ain't going to do what you're going to do. You're going to do what we're going to have you do. (laughs) But I've been on this really awesome journey And that has a lot to do with my interaction with the world and the world around me and realizing all of these things and these bits and pieces that that didn't make sense coming together. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think or what you want to hear about by emailing us at transpantastic at gmail.com or by commenting at our website, transpantastic.net. Don't forget to subscribe in Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher, and leave us reviews and star ratings. Disclaimer time. We are neither your doctor nor your mental health professional. We are here to discuss our own lives, so we take no responsibility for your decisions based on our discussions. If you are considering transition, please seek professional assistance. If you are considering parenting while transitioning, you definitely need professional assistance. All contents are distributed under a Creative Commons no derivative license and may be shared freely in their entirety. Any alteration or less than complete reproduction requires permissions of the hosts. Thanks for listening. To maintain the secrecy. To maintain the secrecy. Of the identities of. Of the identities of. Jess and George. Jess and George. Of the Transpantastic Podcast. Of the Transpantastic Podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. Which really didn't make me say Transpantastic Podcast. Uh, yes, I did. I <laughs> You made yourself say it the she second time. She kept trying well. to figure out what to call it, and she used to call everything tastic, you know, statistically. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, like, this dinner is dumb-tastic. Tastic. Yeah. There's our podcast. There she we go. It, so there yeah, we go. It, it was good. It's yeah. pretty queer. I did that. It is. We are. <laughs> yeah. We are. I was there before you. Yeah. Yeah. I was already back in the main one. So. Yeah. Louder. Yes, sir. <laughs> Sorry. Hmm? Uh, everybody drink. Uh, it's like well, a drinking game. Play. Do you want to get you another one? <laughs> I was going to use the restroom. Yeah, you can use the restroom. Uh, how long are these normally, by the way? We usually record for somewhere between an hour to two hours, and then we'll cut it down. Usually we end up cutting it by somewhere between uh, half and a third okay. once we get all of these little drink breaks and bathroom breaks and so on. Yeah, I was going to warn you about that. <laughs> no, you're good. Ha 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 ha!